Good morning, Southview. We are so glad you're here worshiping with us today. Here are your big three announcements for the week. If you have someone in your family who's getting ready to graduate, please help us celebrate their hard work and achievement by participating in Graduation Sunday, happening June 4th during both services. Simply text the word GRAD to our number 910-424-1298. You can submit up to three pictures of your grad, which are due by the deadline of May 7th. If you have any additional questions, please feel free to call our church office at 910-424-1298. Next up, child dedication. If you'd like to dedicate your child to the Lord, simply text the word CHILD to the number 910-424-1298. Child dedication services will take place this coming Mother's Day, Sunday, May 14th, during both services. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but have never been baptized, please text the word BAPTISM to 910-424-1298. Baptism Sunday will take place Sunday, May 21st at both services. Please join with us in publicly celebrating your profession of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Next, we encourage you to download the Southview Baptist Church app, available in both iTunes and Google Play. This will allow you to view upcoming announcements, sign up for events, find a journey group, listen to past sermons, as well as to find the sermon notes for today. There are also multiple ways to give here at Southview. You can give online, through the app, or at the giving boxes located near the doors as you exit the sanctuary. And finally, if you're a guest with us today, we are so glad you're here. We would love to connect with you. To help us accomplish this, please simply text the word CONNECT to 910-424-1298. 
This will help us to get to know you a little better, figure out how we could be praying for you and how to best minister to you. Thank you for joining us as we worship together our great God. We pray that you're blessed by this. Amen. Good morning, church. What a wonderful day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. It is so exciting. Every opportunity we have to be here together is wonderful because our God is alive. He is risen. He is doing his work in our, in his people, in and through you and me. And my only hope, my only prayer today is that we would simply see him for who he really is, that we would glorify his name, that hearts and minds would be turned closer to him and away from ourselves. Father God, we thank you for these opportunities. I thank you for these souls that you have brought here. That you know each person here individually, intimately, without end. Scripture says that you knew each one of us before time even began, before we were formed in our mother's wombs. Scripture says you knew us. You know our days, you know our comings, our goings. You know every, every hair on our heads. God, there's nothing that we can hide from you. So I pray that we would open our hearts and we would simply proclaim your greatness. Let us be a singing church because we glory in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand and let's celebrate.
chapter 1, verse 15 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I had someone I was talking to the other day. <laughs> and he said, you know, it just feels like in church we just talk about the same thing over and over and over, you know. And I thought about that. And I thought, that's pretty much sums it up. That it's about the personhood of Christ. That it's about constantly reorienting our hearts and our minds to Christ, right? Because like the hymn says, we are, we are prone to wander. We are quick to fall away. And so the only thing that we should ever preach here is Jesus. Jesus, the personhood of Jesus and everything else that surrounds him. It's great to know about sanctification. It's great to understand predestination and all those things. But at the end of the day, you're going to be in heaven with God because of your faith in Christ. And your faith alone is what saves you. Isn't that amazing? It's so simple, but it's so intricate. And so we sing these songs not because we understand all of that stuff, but because we know that we serve a God who saves. Your God, my God, saves. So let's sing that and let's celebrate that simple truth. Our God saves. Let's see.
Southview. How are you guys doing today? I am so excited to be with you guys today. Um, so for those of you who may be new or haven't been here in a while, I'm not Brad, just to let you know. Um, he uh, got a call last week and there was a, a church that was close to where he grew up and it was his home church and they're having homecoming this week and they said, would you come preach for us during homecoming? And he said, yeah. So they called the bullpen out and here I am. So uh, I am with you today. My name is Chris, and I'm so blessed to be with you guys today. I'm so excited to be here. So if you're new and somebody said, hey, you need to go check out this church because the preacher's awesome, and I say something that makes you mad today, come back next week. Trust me, it'll be better. Brad will be back. Uh, you guys will really enjoy it. So, but thank you, for guys, for being with us today. Um, I will tell you, have you ever heard uh, a sermon that was so good that you wish you could have shared it with somebody that wasn't here? You know, and I don't mean like, man, my sister really needed to hear that today. I mean, like, it was so good that it moved you and it changed you, and you said, man, I just really want to share that with somebody who may be out of town or somebody who's PCS'd or, or, or somebody needs to hear that. Well, the great thing is, Southview, we have an app, so you can send it to them, right? And you can, uh, they can tune in and they can listen on YouTube and they can do all those things. But in the first century, they didn't have YouTube. I know that'll shock some of the younger people in here. They didn't have YouTube. And so what would happen is you were sitting, into a, you were sitting in a church or a congregation or a group of God's people, and a messenger would come in, and hey, I've got a letter from Paul. And, and it just came from Paul. Paul wrote this letter. And so uh, Brad's been preaching through the book of Colossians. And it was a letter that Paul wrote from prison to the church in Colossae. And so they're sitting around, and the messenger comes in, and they've got this letter from Paul. And it's like, yes, we've got a letter from Paul. So excited that we can read this letter from Paul today. And they take it apart, and they begin to study it. And maybe you were sitting in that congregation, and you had a cousin that lived in Ephesus. And you're like, man, you missed it. I'm just telling you, that was awesome. I mean, this letter from this letter that he sent us is called Colossians. It was amazing, right? And there were God's truths in it, and we really needed to hear it. And we're going to start studying it. And, and your cousin's like, man, I wanted to hear that. Dang, you know, you guys aren't even on YouTube yet. I can't, I can't listen to it. And so Paul, while he's in prison and he's writing, <clears throat> he's writing the book of Colossians, 
He's also writing the book of Ephesus. And so your cousin in Ephesus, he got to see the book, right? And so what Paul did is he took the book of Colossians and he kind of blew it up a little bit and made it a little bit more in depth and covered a few more things. And he sent that to the church in Ephesus. And so both of these letters come out about the same time. And it's interesting because if you go back into some of the early manuscripts, the word Ephesus isn't in some of the early manuscripts, which, which makes some scholars believe that he sent it to all the churches that were in Asia Minor, including Ephesus and Laodicea. So it would have made the rounds. And it was full of God's truths. And, and I love that. Ephesus is my favorite book. I, I read it all the time. I love it. I, I can't get enough of it. And I kind of feel like Paul felt when he wrote it because you figure Paul's in prison. And it's a dark time. I mean, the first century is a pretty dark time. I mean, they didn't have cameras back then, but if they had cameras, there wouldn't be nobody smiling in the pictures, right? Nobody's happy. It's a difficult time to live. And Paul's in prison, and he writes this, and God begins to to give him all of these truths and all these promises. And and it's amazing. Like, if you want to know what God thinks about you, you really need to read the first three chapters of of Ephesians. Uh, It will overwhelm you if you don't already know the love of God. And and he's getting this, and and it's fun to watch because there's like, very bad grammar in the book of Ephesus. I'm just telling you right now. There's bad grammar because Paul is so overwhelmed, he just goes on and on and on. And it's like one big run-on sentence. And I kind of think about it like if, uh, if, if my littlest girl, Ella, right, she goes over to a friend's house. And they have a great time. They have a sleepover. And they play with Barbies. And uh, they eat stuff they shouldn't eat. And they stay up too late. And they have Mountain Dew at midnight. And, and then I go pick her up in the morning. And we get in the truck. And we come home. And, and I'm like, what happened? How, how, tell me about it. And then she starts going on, 15 minutes, and we did this, and we did this, and we did this, and we had so much fun, and oh my gosh, and blah, 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 blah. 15 minutes, one sentence, right? <clears throat> That's my baby girl. That's Paul in Ephesus. You'll read Ephesus, and you're like, I'm going on for 30 verses, and he, there's no period to be had, right? He's just saying, and God said this, and God said this, and God said this. And he's just so excited God's truth is playing out, and he's able to share it with God's people. And so when you read Ephesus, read it that way. Get excited about what Paul is saying from God. It's amazing, right? And I think about, like, why is Paul so excited? You know, when I think back to the first century, I mean, it's a dark time, right? As a Christian, it was very difficult to live in the first century. Um, you, you could have been killed for nothing, right? You could have been arrested for nothing. I mean, in general, they were overworked and they were overtaxed. And, and that culture that time, they just kind of threw their babies out on the trash piles and, and left them to die. Um, there was discord. Um, they were persecuted, they were killed, right? Um, I'm I'm just so glad those things don't happen today, right? Truth of the matter is, we live in a very difficult time as well. We live in the same kind of times, we just dress a little bit different than Paul did. We still have Christians that are being persecuted, we still have Christians that are being killed, we still have babies that are being killed, we still have people in discord, we still have persecution, we still have a lot of the things that was going on in the first century church. And so when you read a book like Ephesus, understand this, that when Paul wrote it, he said, to the saints in Ephesus. And he's talking to Christians, because you're a saint. We talked about that a couple of months ago. But you're a saint, and so Paul is writing this letter to you. So if you are in Christ, this letter is to you. And the things the church was going through in the first century is not a whole heck of a lot of difference than what we're going through today. Uh, I was listening to a pastor recently, and he said it this way. He said, the Bible is not just about what happened. The Bible is about what is always happening. And that's so true. So let's start to get into it. And I, and I love, too, because Scott had no idea what I was preaching about this morning. And he had the songs and stuff that they picked out. And, and it talks about being a citizen of heaven in that first song. 
right? And that's what the sermon's on, is being a citizen of heaven. So it was perfect, like the Holy Spirit was just telling him what songs to play. And so we're going to talk today about being a citizen of heaven, and we're going to do that in Ephesians 2. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Ephesians 2. We're going to start in verse 11, and we're going to work all the way until verse 22 and uncover a few points. <clears throat> so I'm going to start here with the first word in, version, in verse 11. And I don't have verse 11 up here, so I'm just going to give you a little background. I didn't put it up here, right, because, I mean, it's just talking about circumcision and things like that. And if you came here today and your heart was set on a sermon talking about circumcision, I have disappointed you. I'm just letting you know. You're not getting that today. I skipped over that verse. If you really, really want it, you can call the office. The office will tell you all about it. Uh, you can set up a lunch with Brad, and he can take you out and talk to you about that. But today, I, do want, I don't want to gloss over that first word in verse 11. And it says, therefore, right? Anytime you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, you got to ask, what's that therefore, right? Therefore, specifically, as Paul, he's talking about something that he said earlier. And so before we really get started in verse 11 through 22, I'm going to back up and I want to say, what is Paul talking about? What is he talking about in these verses that we need to know from previous verses? And you can back up just a few verses to verse 8 in verse uh, Ephesians 2, 8. And he says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that nobody can boast, for we are his workmanship, and it also says masterpiece in some versions, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us to do in advance. Okay, So Paul is saying there from the beginning, he's like, look, the whole point of the beginning of Ephesians 2 is that you were lost, and you were dead in your transgresses, and you had no chance. You were without hope, you were without God, and you were living in the world. And Jesus came and got you, and he found you exactly where you were. You didn't have to dress yourself up. You didn't have to come into this building. You didn't have to get yourself right with God before Jesus would accept you. He came and found you where you were dead in your trespasses, and he claimed you as his, and he brought you into the fold of a Christian community, and he had works for you to do, and he called you his masterpiece, and he began to restore you by chiseling away at all the bad stuff in your life to eventually you would be conformed in the image and likeness of God. That's the story of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And that's what Paul's talking about when he gets into 11. So you have to have that in mind. He says, therefore, because of all those things that I just told you, and then he gets into Ephesians 12, and he says, remember. <clears throat> Next word. Remember. Why do you think he says remember here? Well, I mean, if you, if you pay attention to the great theologian and best friend of Lightning McQueen, Mater, Mater says that I don't have to see where I'm going, I just got to know where I've been, right? And Paul writes that kind of sort of, I mean, that's a paraphrase. It, it may be the message version, I don't know. <clears throat> but Paul writes it and he says, basically, you have to remember where you were when Christ found you. Don't get all prideful in your Christianity because he cleaned you up. Don't think that you had anything to do with it because in Ephesians 2.10 it says that he did it with no works from you so that you couldn't boast. And so in here he's saying, remember, don't ever forget where you were when Christ found you. You were broken. You were dead in your transgressions. You had nothing going for you, right? And, and, I mean, maybe you've been here for 50 years, and you've walked faithfully with Christ for 50 years, and when I look at you, I see a godly man or woman that's older that has wisdom and grace and all of those things. But you didn't start off that way, right? And Paul is saying, no, God knew where you were when he found you, so don't forget it. It's very important for you to remember. And so then what he says is, remember that... You were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, 
This is a great sentence right here. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right? So, and I, 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 I'm not really an aficionado on Jewish culture, so I didn't know what these two phrases meant before I went to Israel last year. So if you guys know, some of our youth, they'll do a program called SLU, and they get to travel to Europe and Israel and different places like that. And so for the kids in here, if you are in youth and you go through SLU, I get to take you to Israel when you're a senior. That's really, really cool. We took some college kids. So you can go to Israel. What they do is we, they send pastors with us, and we walk where Jesus walked, and we study the Word of God in the place that it occurred. And it's amazing, and I love it. But one of the coolest things last year that they did was they, uh, we had a Jewish uh, guide. We had a guide. He was more of an area guide and telling us all the history and stuff. But he was a Jewish guide, and he wasn't a Christian, so he didn't necessarily believe in the New Testament and what we said, but he, he was an expert on the Old Testament. And so when we would go places, he would like, here's the Jewish perspective, and this is what the Jews thought and everything. And I asked him, I said, you know, what do the Jews think about the state of Israel? Because, you know, in the Bible, it says that if you love Israel, you'll be blessed. And, and so I really want to know as an American, because we support Israel, and I want to know what you think about it. And he said, you know, he said, for us, it's about the people. He said, God has made us a commonwealth of Israel. He said, to us, that means that it's a people group. It's a family. It's a community. And we love our people. He said, you know, when Hitler came in in World War II and began killing and persecuting Jews, and he said, we've been persecuted and killed for a long time, he said, but we scattered. And he said, some of us went to Russia, some of us went to South America, some of us came to the United States, some of us went to other parts of Europe. And he said, but we were scattered, and we miss our people. He said, we love our people. And he said, so when we got statehood and we begin to bring people back, there's people moving from Russia, there's people moving from South America, and when you come, they're so excited because our people are back together, Right? And as a Christian, as, as a, person, a member of family, I know that. Like, my, my kids are in the process of moving off and, and going in different places and, and, and moving in different directions. And, and they get scattered, and there's nothing that brings a, a, a parent's heart joy than to see their kids coming back home, right? And that's what he was saying. He was like, for us, it's all about the people. He said, yeah, we like the land, and it's God's promise to us, and, 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 and the land's important. But the only reason why the land's important is because that's where we meet. That's where our family gets together. And he says, for the politics, I really don't care about the politics of it. The only thing that's valuable about the politics is that I get to be with my people. And that's what he says about the commonwealth of Israel. And so you have to understand that when Paul's writing this, he's talking about the Gentiles and the Jews. And the Jews see their commonwealth of Israel as a family. And it's awesome. And they love each other unconditionally, right? And then you're the Gentile. You're on the outside. And you're looking in. And, and you've got no family. And you've got no hope. And, and you're not a part of that. And, and the way that one pastor describes it, he says, you know, I was walking through Edinburgh, and it was snowing, and it was cold. And he said, and I looked into a house, and there was a big plate glass window. And on the inside, I could see a family. And they were eating together, and they were loving on each other, and they were spending time together, and they were laughing. And he said, and I saw what I wanted, but I couldn't get to it. That's what it was to be a Gentile in this time. He's saying that as a Gentile, you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You're alienated from the family that seems to do it so well. You're not a part of it. You're on the outside. And how does that relate to us today? I, I think, you know, I, in any given Sunday, there's seven, 700 people in here, 750 people in here, or whatever. There's over 100,000 people that live within five-mile radius of here, right? They are alienated from the commonwealth of Southview. We come into this building and we love on each other and we support one another and we edify each other and we build each other up. And there are people that are outside this building that are looking through that place glass window and they desire it because that's how God built them, to want it. And they're outside looking in, right? And so it should, that's why Paul says, remember, 
There, there was a time when you were outside looking through that plate glass window. Remember that there are people out here, and what it should do is it should break you for the heart of God. It should break you for God loving those people so much in a five-mile concentric circle of this church that you want them in here. Like, I want you to be a part of this family because it is awesome. The second part that this guy taught me was the strangers to the covenants of promise. And you think about it, if you were a Gentile, the Jews were a chosen people. God said, these are my people. And he said, I love them, and I'm going to bless them, and their descendants are going to number the stars, and I will never leave them, and I will never forsake them. I mean, you can read the Old Testament. God promises a lot of things to his people. But if you were a Gentile, you were on the outside, and you were looking in, and you're like, I, I don't know God. I don't know God. I mean, God says that he's doing all these things for you, but I've got no promise. I, I can't claim those promises. Those promises are for the Jews, right? And so it says the result of that is you had no hope, you were without God, and you were in the world. And how empty that is. And that's why Paul says, remember, you were there, right? You were dead in your trespasses. You were alone without a family. And God came and got you. And he picked you up and he brought you into the household of God. That's why it's so important to remember so that when we look at other people that are outside the family of God, we welcome them. We pray for their salvation. We pray that God would go pluck them up and bring them into this building and be a part of this community. So the truth number one that Paul talks about is remember your story. Remember where you came from. Second thing that Paul talks about. He says, um, Christ is our peace. In 14, he says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of the commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both in God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. So what is he saying about this? There's two contrasts here. There's peace and there's hostility, and he talks about both of them. And and I think about the wall of hostility. So also when we were in Jerusalem, uh, we were able to visit several synagogues. And you could see the wall of hostility is what they called it. And so in a synagogue, you would have the center is where the priest could go. And then you would have a section out that's where the Jews could go. And then you would have a section out from that and it's where the women could go. And then you would have a section out from that and that would be where the Gentiles would go. So if you were a Gentile, you were on the outer circle. And these little walls that were between those sections were called the walls of hostility. If you crossed over those walls and you were in an area that you shouldn't have been in, they could have killed you, right? That was the punishment. It was the wall of hostility. And what you see in Jewish life is they built up these walls of hostility, these types of divisions between their people, and they based them on things like class, on nationality. Sometimes they based them on genealogy. They based them on whether you were a man or a woman. They based them on race. Maybe you were Greek. Maybe you were Jew, right? And they had all these divisive pieces in Jewish culture. And I think it's interesting that Jesus says, for he himself is our peace. And Jesus broke down all of those things. And, and once again, I mean, Jews, the, the Jewish culture, they had all these divisions of hostility. And I'm so glad that we don't have that, right? These days and times, we don't have things that we divide people into classes for and push people off to the side because they're a particular color or a particular sex or a particular ideology or anything like that. We don't do anything like that. The point is, is that we're very similar to first century Jews because we have these walls of hostility that we've built up. And and I will tell you, I wrote down a few of them that I think that we're probably guilty of today, right? You have hostility in different places, and hostility is conflict, and conflict is division. 
But think about in school. Of course, we, ha we have some hostility in school. I mean, school's on the news every night now, right? We have hostility in school. We have hostility at work. You see workplace conflict all the time. It's difficult to be around people at work. We have, uh, work, we have conflict and hostility in race. Uh, it's something that America deals with right now. It's a struggle. You, you see that we're being divided amongst different races. Socioeconomic is a wall of hostility. Uh, politics. And, and I find that these are true as well, as we even have walls of hostility in our families, right? We have conflict and division within our families. Uh, and then even so much as we have conflict and division as the church, right? We spend a lot of time here. Sometimes when you spend a lot of time here, you rub people wrong, right? And so we have conflict and hostility within the church. And that's not the way that it's supposed to be. But unfortunately, sin permeates everything. It permeates all of our relationships, and it causes hostility between us. And that's not the way that God ever intended. As a matter of fact, in verse 14, it says specifically, for he himself is our peace. And what does that mean? It means that God came and sent his one and only son to the earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross that paid the price for our division so that we don't have to live that way anymore. What it means is that because he paid the price, we can live in community with each other without that hostility. We can overcome those differences. Now think about it like this. He says, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What does that mean? How does he do it through the cross? What was he talking about? Well, Because Jesus came and lived and died on the earth, and he rose again on the third day, the cross means a lot. And if you look at Ephesians 2, it's actually divided up into two sections. The beginning of Ephesians 2, it talks about because of the cross and because of the price that Jesus paid, well, at first we were alienated from God. We were separated with God because we're sinful and God can't uh, allow us to be in his presence because of sin. And so the price had to be paid for our sin. And because Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for our sins so that we may be reconciled to God, right? That's the first part of Ephesians 2 is verse 1 through 10 is that we're reconciled to God through the cross, Right? And then what we're talking about right now is 11 through 22, now you're reconciled to others through the cross. So first you're reconciled to God, and second you're reconciled to others. And that's why Ephesians 2 is written that way. And I think it's interesting, it's in that order. Right? The first part of Ephesians 2 says you've got to be reconciled to God. You can't do anything before you're reconciled with God. Everything else is hopeless. Right? You can't expect to be reconciled to others until you are reconciled to God. Right? Because your relationship with God is the primary foundation for every other relationship in your life. If you have a wrong relationship with Christ, you will have a wrong relationship with others. There's no way around it. That's just the gospel. And so I think about this a couple of practical ways. And just I was thinking, as I was thinking it through this past week, um, I, I met with a guy a couple of years ago, struggling in his marriage, really, really, he said, you want to go to lunch? And I want to talk to you about the problems my wife and I are having. And I was like, absolutely, I'll, I'll go anywhere you want to go. And so we go to lunch, and he begins to sit down, and he begins to talk about all the problems between him and his wife. And you've got him, and you've got his wife over here. And, you know, there's sin between us, and she hurt me, and I hurt her, and we're struggling, and there's walls of hostility, and we're just divided, and we can't communicate, and, and I just need, I need some help, right? And so my first question, and any time you go to lunch with me, my first question is going to be, how's your relationship with Christ? And he's like, what? I don't want to talk about that. And I'm like, uh, that's all I want to talk about, because how your relationship with Christ is impacts everything else in your life. And if you don't have an appropriate relationship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no other relationship in your life that will be good. That's just the bottom line, because he says he is our peace. You can't have peace without him. 
And the guy said, no, I want you to just help me work on my marriage. You know, let's get the sin out of the way. Let's figure it out. Like, it doesn't work like that. I can work with you from now until the end of the time, and I never, ever will be able to eliminate the walls of hostility between you and your wife. The only way that it works is if you say, I will commit completely to seek God in everything that I do. And I will drive my relationship with God, and I will work on my relationship with God, and I will get in a right standing with Christ. And she works on her relationship with God and begins to work on a right standing with God. And what you will find is the farther you chase God, the closer together that you guys will be. It is the only way to bridge that gap of hostility is for Christ to kill the walls of hostility. The second thing I was thinking about is, um, I was thinking about, you know, we have a lot of walls of hostility in our culture right now. In fact, I, I kind of think we, we idolize walls of hostility. Uh, I think about like, um, right now the world is, is, is pushing division on us in amazing amounts. Um, you know, if you watch the news for long enough, you'll know politics is one of the big drivers of division. Uh, you know, you may be a Republican, somebody else may be a Democrat, and if you're a Republican and they're a Democrat, you're supposed to hate them, right? Um, you know, and, and, and if you watch news long enough, you'll know that, like, it's like, if you watch Fox News, they'll say the Democrats are evil, and if you watch CNN, they'll say the Republicans are evil. It's not even that we just disagree on a particular policy, it's that they're evil. I'm supposed to hate them. It's a wall of division, right? Uh, race is that way. Socioeconomic is that way, and, and, and it doesn't matter if you wait around long enough the mainstream media will push on a wall of division on the people. The idea is that you're supposed to be divided. Christ says, no, you're not supposed to be divided. As a matter of fact, if you read Titus 3.9, which I love Titus 3.9, it says, don't debate things like genealogy and politics because they're fruitless. And what he's saying, Paul also wrote Titus, but what, what Paul is actually saying in that is that whatever you focus on, you're going to get, Right? If the core of your life is to focus on politics and division, then you're going to have a lot of divisiveness kind of all around you, right? But if the focus of your life is to focus on Christ, you're going to have a lot of unity around you, right? Because he is the peace. And so if you focus on him, you get peace in all those other relationships. If all you want to do is focus on the things that divide us, you're going to find division. So whatever you focus on is what you get. And the third thing I was thinking about, you know, sin separates us. You know, I'm sure that in a room this big, I have done something to one of you to make you mad. I promise. We've been here long enough. I can promise you that I've ticked somebody in this room off, right? And I can promise you that somebody in the room's ticked me off. That's life. That's just because we're both sinful people, right? And, and I know that what happens between two people is there is a minor sin against one or the other. And, and it doesn't get reconciled, and we don't talk about it, and I don't even tell you, but it, it really bothered me, and I just don't even tell you. And so, as a result, I, I quit talking to you more, as much as I used to, and we grow apart a little bit more, and we grow apart a little bit more, and pretty soon, there's that distance, and it gives the devil a foothold in that relationship. And before you know it, you're so far apart, you can't even remember what it was that destroyed the relationship, right? And, and I don't know what somebody did to you. And I don't know what you did to somebody else. And, and my guess is that in this room, there's probably some pretty serious stuff. Um, some people are awfully sinful and they hurt people tremendously, right? And, and there are some things that are between you and another person where you may need to even grab a pastor. You're like, look, this is just, this is bigger than I can deal with. And that's, that's what pastors are here for, right? But I would argue that 90% of what damages relationships and walls of hostility between people are minor. It's something that if we had hit it in the very beginning and we said, look, you know, you just kind of said something to defend me and I still love you, but I need to work, work through this. Then we could have reconciled together and we could have gotten back together and we wouldn't have been driven apart. Most of the issues that are between us are minor. 
And in fact, you know, I, I'm doing this study right now in my men's class. And if, if any of the guys want to join a men's class on Wednesday night, you're, you're welcome to join us. We're, we're getting ready to go through the book of James. We're just finishing up Ephesians this week. It's Wednesday at 630. We'd love to have you. But one of the guys in my class, he said this, and it just struck me. And I was like, that's so right. He said, we have more things in common than we have between us, differences between us. And he said, if you are in Christ, you have more in common with a poor man who's living in a hut in Ghana than you do with your neighbor who works at the same place, that likes the same sports team, that's an atheist that lives right next to you. And how true that is. It doesn't matter what the differences are between you. It doesn't matter what the walls of hostility are. It doesn't matter what sin has been there. It doesn't matter how you've been hurt. All that matters is, he says, through the cross, he killed the hostility. You know, I don't want to get too technical because this, you know, we, we, we don't have time. I've got to get you guys to make sure you guys get some chicken and barbecue before the line gets too long. But the reason why is because if Christ knows who I was, remember Paul said remember, and, and God sent his son to die for me on the cross, knowing what I did, and, I, and, and if you think about it, like, he forgave me of so much, how can I not forgive others? If the cross is real and Jesus did that for me, how can I not do it for somebody else? That's why it kills the hostility, because I can promise you that you haven't done anything to me that is worse than what I've done to God. And God forgave me so I can forgive you. That's why the wall of hostility is gone. If I focus on how you hurt me, yeah, we're going to be here all day. But if I focus on how God forgave me, we can be at lunch this afternoon together. Killing the hostility, so, so important. Number three, verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit in the father so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints, one of my favorite words, and members of the household of God, right? So to southernize this and to turn it into the message version, you're all in the family. You're all in the family right? He's written it to the saints. So if you are in this room and if you're a part of this church and if you're in Christ, you're all in the family. That's what he's talking about. And I love the analogies of family. And it's one of the only titles that God keeps for himself that he doesn't delegate, right? Because God is father. And if you pay attention to who God is as father, you'll be a great father because you just do what he does, right? He says, this, this title is so important that I'm going to model it for you and you're going to learn it from me, right? And so I love it because it makes sense to me because I'm a dad and I've got kids and God's a dad and God's got kids. And he says, hey, I preach peace to you and everybody's got access to one of the Father. And so they're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're citizens in the household of God, which means y'all are kids in God's house, right? And so what does that mean? How does God see his children? It says it right here. We all have one access to the Father. What does that mean? It means that my access to God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Your access to God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't have any more access than you do. There are some men in this room that have been walking faithfully with God for 50 years. They love Jesus. They've been sanctified over those years. They walk a godly walk. They're wise. And I'm not. And they have the same amount of access that somebody walks in here that just became a Christian yesterday has to our Lord, our Lord and Savior. It's the blood of Jesus that gives you the access. So when you're sitting here, and I, and I know that as Americans, we tend to think we're the most important thing in the world. Um, and so when I walk into a room, I'm, I'm thinking, well, I'm the most important person in this room, right? That's what most people think. But the problem is it's not what God says. 
God says, I love all of my kids, and I give access to all my kids equally. You know, I, I, I love my children. If one of them calls me, I'm dropping what I'm doing, I'm going running. It doesn't matter which one it is. All of them have the same access to dad. And if you call me, I'm going to go running. And if you pick up the phone and call your heavenly father, he's going to come running. Right? You have the same access. You don't have a special access that somebody else has. And the second thing I think about is that he loves us all the same. He loves us all the same. I mean, you, a jacked up person like me, he just loves me, right? And maybe you've been walking better, maybe you've been walking longer, maybe you've done more things for the kingdom, maybe you are a super saint. He loves me just the same as he loves you. And the person that just walked in, that somebody mentioned Christ to in the parking lot, never heard the name before, walks in and comes in here and accepts Christ, he loves him just as much. That's the way the gospel is. And, you know, it makes sense as a dad because I love my kids all the same too. i got some that are older than others. I've got some that are a little bit more knuckleheaded than others. I love them all the same. I love them all the same. And, you know, as, as parents, don't you get ticked off when your kids start fighting? It's like, come on, can we get a little peace and quiet? Like, love your sister, love your brother. Come on now. You know, we don't have to do this right now. We're in the store. Don't embarrass me, right? Um, you know, we make them put on that, that 4X large T-shirt where it says that I love my sibling, you know, and they both have to wear it at the same time, and it's like the get-along shirt, right? That's how God's got to see us, you know? We think we're big and bad, and we come into church, and we're part of the family of God, and somebody ticks us off, and we go off on them, and we have this division between us, and God's like, come on, people, just love each other. I'm going to have to bring out the big shirt and put y'all in it, right? He, he just, I want my kids to love each other. I want my kids to want the best for each other. Because there's going to be a day, and you know, God will be here forever, but there's going to be a day when I'm not here, and they're going to have each other. And I want them to honestly want the best for each other and to love each other with everything they have. Because that's what a family does. The next thing that I think about is God sees his children differently than we see, our, than we see the, the children of God. You know, when we look at other people, we tend to focus on ourselves more. And we look at other people and we're critical. It's like, ah, man, you know what they're struggling with. I'm glad I never struggled with that. Whew, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't even know if they should be here. You know, and, and we look at other people and we, we, we look down on them because of the struggles that they're going through. Right? And God's like, no, 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 no. You don't know them. You don't know. See, Christ died for all of us. As a matter of fact, if you were the only person left on earth, Christ would have come down and died on the cross just for you. And what that means as well is the person that you're mad with, same boat. God would have given up his first, his best, his only just to save that person. And if God sees them that way, how can we see him in the other way? We look at somebody and think, well, they're not as mature and they're not as far along in their walk and they haven't done the things for the kingdom that we've done. That's not how God sees them. God says, I love them and I died for them. And you better treat them like I died for them. You know, and I'll tell you, I, I, I'm a dad. I got a lot of kids. Don't mess with my kids, right? And I'm from the south part of heaven. I, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm armed. I'm just letting you know. You mess with one of my kids, it's on. And that's the way God is. God's like, don't mess with my kids. I love my kids. And God's, he's well better armed than I am. God loves all of his children. And this, this is the part that I love. I love this part right here because of adoption. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. So about 12 years, I don't remember how many years ago, 11, 9 years ago, whatever it was, we went and got Katie from China. Um, and she was a Chinese citizen, and then we, came, we went back and we got Ella from China. She, Ella was a Chinese citizen, and then the Coles went and got Mei Mei, and Mei Mei was a Chinese citizen. And, and they have Chinese passport. They have Chinese citizenship, right? They're citizens of China. And so they tell us, like, when you take off and you go to land, wherever you land, 
their citizenship is revoked. They are no longer citizens of China, right? And so we landed in America, they're citizens of America. And we're so excited, and we go through the airport, and we stop because there's a big American flag as you come into Raleigh. And we stop there, and then uh, we're taking pictures, and alarms start going off, and TSA starts running out with tasers and stuff. And we're like, no, 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 we're just taking pictures. Apparently, you can't stop there. But they're no longer citizens of China. They're now citizens of America. They are in the household of Calhoun, right? That's who they are. And it doesn't make any sense for them to keep their Chinese citizenship. They can't even speak the language now anyway. But it, 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 neither one of them can use chopsticks either. So what's the point, right? <laughs> what's the point of being a citizen of China? They don't have any privileges in China. They don't live there. There's nothing that China can do for them. It's useless. So why would you have a dual citizenship? Your citizenship is here, right? But as church members, are we any different? Because what God says is that you're no longer strangers and aliens. Your citizenship in the world is over. You are no longer citizens of the world. You're citizens of the church. You are citizens of the household of God. But that's not the way we act. We leave out of here on a Sunday afternoon and we go back to living in the world. And then we come back and stamp our passport like we have a visa to come to church and we're just visiting here. Right? That's not what God says. God says, your old passport is done. You are out of this world. That is not the place that you should be living. You are now citizens of heaven. That's what Scott was singing about in that first song. You are citizens of the household of God, and you should act like it. Don't try to live like you have a different citizenship. I love that part about that verse. And then I think about, like, when the girls came over, I mean, there's value. Like, you, 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 get, you, you get privileges being in the Cal- Calhoun household, right? You get a roof over your head. You get ramen. They love ramen. We've got plenty of that. Um, they, get a, they get food to eat. They get uh, a bed to sleep in. They're warm, and, and they have all these benefits from being in the household of Calhoun. But with those privileges come responsibilities, right? They have to help with the dishes, and they have to do these things and do those things. They have to act like they live in the household of Calhoun. And God says the same thing. God says that when you're in the household of God, there's tons of privileges. It's awesome. You get salvation. You get eternal life. You get sanctification. You get God in your side every time, all the time. You get the presence of the Lord. You get all these things. There's so many privileges, way better than being in the household of Calhoun. But there's also responsibilities. And God said, I don't ask much from you. But what I do ask you is to love God, to love your siblings, and to carry the gospel. Those are the responsibilities in being in the household. The problem is, is that we treat it more like we're renting the place than we own it. Right? We feel like we need to be served instead of us serving others. And so being a citizen means that you revoke your old citizenship and you take on your new citizenship. And so then finally, number four, verse 20, this is what a good church looks like. And and I love Southview. I've been at Southview for a long, long time. This is like the best church anywhere, I can promise you that. Uh, And I've had kids that have gone off and they've gone off to other cities and we go and try to find them a church and we're like, oh, This is so difficult because there's just not a lot of great churches, right? But this is what a great church should look like, and it's a blessing to be in this church, to be in this building. And there's three things that Paul says that a church better do if it's going to be a good church. And so the first one is they're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, what does that mean? Well, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets is the Word of God, right? God spoke. God spoke to his prophets and his apostles, and they penned this word. And so that everything that this church does has to be built on the Word of God. It's all we do. 
If you come here and you see me preach, I'm preaching straight from this. We're just going straight scripture. I mean, I'm not making this up. It is what it is. You can check behind me. It's right there, right? Um, If you see Brad up here preaching, it's the exact same thing. He's preaching straight from the Word of God. I'm not telling you what I think because what I think, frankly, doesn't matter. What matters is what God says. That's the only thing that matters. And a good church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And that's one of the greatest challenges to churches in America right now is they've got away from the Word of God. If you go into a church and they do not value the inerrant Word of God, you're in the wrong church. That's the first step to ending up in an apostasy church. The second thing that Christ says that is, or God says is so important for a great church is that Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is everything. Scott said it when he was up here singing. Is I know it gets tiring. We're talking about Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We talk about Jesus. Well, I mean, if you hadn't figured it out, that's kind of what we're about, right? Jesus is everything. He's the cornerstone. When you go to build something, you put in the cornerstone, and it's the first stone that's laid because it's what everything else is measured off of, right? We measure everything off of Jesus. He is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. He is everything to us. In fact, Brad says all the time that Jesus is so important that we actually name the whole thing after him. Christianity, right? It's all about Christ. Like if you go to a church and it's not all about Christ, then run because it's not about anything else other than the blood of Christ. And the third thing that a great church has is in the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are always also being built together for a spiritual dwelling place by God the Spirit. And it says basically this, that what happens in this situation is that we're joined together. How are we joined together? We eliminate conflict. We eliminate the walls of hostility because Christ eliminated this for us. And a good church that is unified, that loves each other well, becomes a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit dwells here, then we're more effective as a church and we're more effective in the community. And we get to be able to do the things that God wants us to do because we're unified and because we love each other well. The Jews would understand this because the temple back then had the Holy of Holies in the middle. And that was where God resided. That's where the Spirit of God would have resided. And so they said the temple is the place where God resides. But for us Christians, I mean, I can tell you there's no temple. I was just there, right? It's just a big blank spot. There's no temple. Temple's gone. Temple came down in 70 AD. There's no temple anymore. So where does God reside? Inside of us. Inside of us. We are the new temple. In fact, the crucified Jesus were saying it. Jesus says, I'll tear down the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. What he meant was they will crucify him and he'll rise again and the new temple is us, right? So when he talks about being a spiritual dwelling place for the temple, what he's talking about is that if we are a good church and we're based on the word of God and Jesus is our cornerstone and we live in community and tamp down the conflict and love each other well, the Holy Spirit resides here and as a church we're an effective force for the kingdom. That's what he's saying. And so that's our part to live together in harmony. All that to say this, as the band kind of comes up, I, I, I want to go through uh, maybe three things that I think that we can talk about. And, and the band's going to play a song, and I really want, as the band plays this song, for you to think about one of these three things. And, and I think that we all kind of fit into one of these three categories. Maybe you're somebody that's brand new. Maybe you've never heard this before, or maybe you've been battling. I mean, I was in church a long time before God grabbed me. And I sat back, and I didn't really understand anything, and I was that, that Gentile that was on the outside looking in, and and I just didn't get it. I, I was an alien to the community, and I was a stranger to God's promises. I didn't understand any of that. And then there was one day when I was 28, and I was at a church in Greenville, North Carolina. And the pastor, I, don't, I didn't even know what he preached on. I don't even think it was that good. It, it wasn't a great, great, great sermon. But, but God said, you're mine. I'm not letting you do this anymore. 
And at 28 years old, God grabbed a hold of me, and he's never looked back. Maybe that's your day today. Maybe you came in, and maybe you're half in. Maybe you're like, you know, I've been going to church for a while, and I've been in youth, and I agree with these things, and I just, I, God hasn't said anything. Maybe today's the day that God gets a hold of you. And what God would say to you through this word is to seek God first. You can't do anything else in your life until you're reconciled with God. That's the most important decision that you will ever make in your life is to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. So maybe as the band sings this morning, that's you. Maybe you have to do some work with God. Maybe God has been working on you, and now it's finally time to say yes to Him. Or maybe you fall into the second category. Maybe you just need to reconcile, right? Maybe you've been here a lot, and somebody else has been here a lot, and you've rubbed each other the wrong way, and you guys are mad at each other, and you're struggling, and you're, you're divided. And maybe you've just got to seek them out and say, you know what? I need to forgive you and I need for you to forgive me because we can't live like this. Jesus paid too high of a price on the, call, on the cross and I'm not going to let that be in vain. I need reconciliation with you so that we can be more effective for the kingdom. And, and I would encourage you, if that's you today, don't leave this place without doing it. Because if you leave this place without doing it, you'll forget about it and it'll grow and it'll grow and it'll grow. Before you know it, it'll be insurmountable and you have to get a pastor involved. Don't do that. Seek out that person and reconcile with them. And so maybe, maybe you're in the third group, which is to be the church group. And I'll tell you, you know, I started coming here when I was uh, younger. I was uh, 16 or 17, and I came in the youth group. Rebecca's uh, family was, um, was one of the founding members of this church. And so I came, honestly, I came because my buddy told me there were more girls here than there were anywhere else. And that's, that's like, all right, I'll go, let's go. Um, and so I came, and it, it must have worked, so I met my wife. Um, but... But I came for the wrong reasons, right? And, and when I came here as a 17-year-old, the Hawleys poured into me, and they invested in me, uh, and they loved me. Even though I had nothing to do with Christ until I was 28 years old, but they began planting seeds. And now I come here, and I bring uh, my baby girl Ella to the fifth grade room, and uh, Bud and Mary Jackson, they love on her, and they invest in her, and they spend time with her. And my older children go into the youth room, and Ryan and Emily invest in them, and they spend time with them, and they mentor them, and they love on them. Right? And about nine years ago, Rebecca was diagnosed with brain cancer. And we were devastated, absolutely devastated. Uh, we were members here, and Scott came over to the house that night with his guitar and about 12 other people. And we just sat in the living room, and we played worship songs and cried and sang uh, and just loved on each other. And then she gets ready to go for surgery day. And, uh, and I, as, a dad, as a husband and a dad, you don't know what to do. I mean, I, I can't do both. Clearly, my wife needs me more than anything. I don't have time for these kids right now. And I look down the hallway, and our youth pastor is walking down the hall with my son, Austin, just investing in him and loving on him, you know, picking up where I couldn't do it. And then we go into, she goes into surgery, and, you know, I'm, I'm in this room, and I'm praying, and she was in surgery for four hours. And we're in this circle with deacons and with members of the church and with people who were in here today. And we're holding hands and we're praying for the whole four hours. Nobody looked up. And when we got done, she came out of surgery. The floor was just wet with tears. That's the church. That's what God does through this unity. And if we had time and I let you come up, I would hear thousands of stories just like that. Because that's what Southview Baptist Church means to me and what it means to so many of you. And so I say that to say this. I hear from a lot of people, man, I just need for the church to do this for me, or I need for the church to do this for me. And, and I know, I know that you need that because it's how God wired you. You're not supposed to live alone. You're supposed to live in community in that way because God said it's not good for you to be alone. That's not how he built you. So I know that you want that. 
But the question isn't whether you want it. The question is whether you're willing to be it. We, we need group leaders. We need journey group leaders. We need teachers. Kelly needs people to come love on these babies down here. We need people to come love on the children in the youth room. We need people to come love on the children that are in the children's ministry. We need people that will come alongside couples and say, hey, you're struggling in your marriage. I've been there. I've been there. And we came through it, and you can too. We need people to be the church so that the church continue to make an impact in the kingdom. So I, I, I pray that as they sing this song that you think about those three things. Love you guys. I've enjoyed being with you. Thank you so much. Did you catch what he said? That he came here when he was 17 and that he was saved at 28. So he was in church for 11 years and God was patient and kind and through other people impacted his life and gave him his wife, gave him his family. But he had to come to the end of himself. And my prayer for you and for me is right here today that we would come to the end of ourselves the first thing you need to do if you haven't already done so is be reconciled to Christ. Like Chris said, that's the first step. You have to. You can't get past it. And after that, be reconciled to others. So my prayer and my hope is that whether you come here and pray or whether you stand and sing or sit and ponder what's been discussed, that you would worship God as the Spirit leads you this morning. He will be glorified we would be reconciled back to him. Let's see.
love you. We thank you for this message. We thank you for the reminder of unity. And God, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be ever further turned towards you. That as, as we are reconciled in Christ, we are reconciled as a people. We are reconciled as a family. God, allow this church to be Christ to this community and to the world. Father, we love you. We thank you for these truths that never change. We worship the person of Jesus the Christ. In his name we pray all these things. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.